Professor Saberi Kanliff, thank you very much for agreeing to her to talk to us about archaeology. Um, can you tell us about your role in archaeology today? At the moment, I'm uh, retired. I retired two years ago. I was Professor of European Archaeology here at Oxford. And now I'm just uh, an archaeologist thoroughly enjoying life. That is wonderful. Can we go back to the beginning? Um, well, how did you become interested in archaeology? Oh, this goes back a very, very long way, uh, right into prehistory. Uh, when I was a, a small kid, uh, just after the war, uh, I lived in Portsmouth. It was bombed out. It was a horrible city. And I used to go away for summer holidays with my mother to an uncle's farm in Somerset. And um, I remember one day, I, I was bored for some reason. I have no idea why, but I was bored. And uh, my uncle said, why don't you go out in, into the field with the Roman villa and see if you can find anything? So I, I knew nothing about this. I went into the field, uh, kicked over the molehills, picked up bits of pottery, tessery, bits of Roman tile, and I was absolutely hooked. And from that moment onwards, I wanted to be an archaeologist. And what, about what age? Uh, that must have been about um, eight, eight or nine, something about that Yes, that, that is period. a fantastic age to become interested in archaeology, isn't it? Once so, it grabs you, you you're, yes. you're stuck. So it started to grab you. What, what happened after that? Well, I was fortunate. I went to a, a, a state school in Portsmouth where there was an amateur archaeologist who ran a small excavation out on the Chalk Downs north of Portsmouth. And he took schoolboys out to dig on Sunday afternoons. Uh, so that was my introduction, very much in the local amateur mode. And then I, I teamed up with one or two other local amateurs and went out on Saturdays and Sundays. And then I would uh, go to Winchester and dig with the museum uh, on uh, any spare time I had, holidays. Uh, so when I was about sort of 15, 14, 15, 16, I was spending every spare minute I could digging somewhere with someone. What a, yeah, it's a fantastic introduction to archaeology for young people, this, isn't it? Uh, yes, it was yes. A, a fortunate opportunity. Yes. Some, someone there, someone inspiring, and, and the chance to get in and get dirty. And you went to Cambridge. You studied archaeology? Yes. Um, I, um, from, I got really involved in archaeology when I was still at school, and I used to do small bits of supervision on, on rescue excavations. Um, I was going to study uh, science, natural sciences at Cambridge, and there was a, I got into Cambridge, and there was a moment when I decided that either I'm going to study natural sciences and spend all my time being, uh, spare time being an archaeologist, or I might just as well take the plunge. And everyone said, don't do it, archaeology isn't a serious profession. Uh, so I took the plunge. Um, I decided to do archaeology and anthropology. I was at St John's College with a, a wonderful archaeologist looking after us, uh, Glyn Daniel, who was oh, yes. a great television personality at that stage. Uh, and um, I thoroughly enjoyed my, my few years there. And would you disagree with your uh, initial sort of reaction that archaeology, there was no future in archaeology? Um, I believe there was probably no future in, in terms of making money um, in archaeology. Uh, all I was hoping to do was to be able to find work in archaeology. And from Cambridge, I started doing my doctorate there. And uh, whilst I was doing it, uh, a job came up at Bristol University, uh, um, a, an assistant lecturer, I think it was called, in the Department of Classics, uh, lecturing on Roman Britain and archaeology in general. Uh, I applied for it and I got it, which was an amazingly good chance. Uh, and from then on, I've been in the university world. You came to Oxford in 1972. Mm. Um, 
can you set out some of the things that you initiated that you started here in Oxford? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. um, well, just to go back a little bit, I, I mentioned I was at Bristol University and I was there for um, three years, I think. Uh, and then a chance came to move to Southampton to set up a, a new archaeological department there. It's in 1966, uh, which I did. Um, absolutely, it was just me to start with, and then we built the department, which was very good. Um, and uh, in 1972, I came to Oxford. Um, it, I wasn't sure I wanted to come to Oxford. Uh, in those days, you didn't actually have to apply for a job. Um, even if they wanted you, they, they, they wrote and asked you, you yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, I was really doubtful about coming because at Southampton we had set up a new, very vital um, new, new department, very energetic new department, uh, very well equipped uh, in, in a new purpose-built building. Like we'd put a lot of effort into it. We had plans for developing new posts were going to be available within one and two, three years' time. We were just about to start a degree in proper archaeology as opposed to um, joint degrees in archaeology. So everything was going for Southampton. Um, Oxford at that stage was um, very, um, um, well, pretty Restricted. dull. Pretty <laughs> yes. dull. Um, it was dynamically conservative in the worst <laughs> sense of the word. Um, and um, there really wasn't very much here. The institute existed. There was the chair of European archaeology, which was held by Christopher Hawkes who had just retired. Uh, Christopher had virtually no facilities at all. Uh, there were a couple of archaeologists in the Pitt Rivers Museum and there was a, an, an archaeologist do, doing European archaeology in the Ashmolean Museum, but very little um, uh, really uh, structure for archaeology. There was a thing called the Committee for Archaeology, uh, which nominally held all the bits together, but it was very, very fragmented. No undergraduates at all. Um, and um, the, the most successful bit of what was done were, were, were the diplomas. There were one-year diplomas in archaeology, which people took after their first degree. And uh, there were probably four, three, four people doing a diplo diploma in any one year. And then each member of the staff tended to have two or three research students. And that was it. It was very, very low-key, very laid-back, um, I thought very lazy. Um, quite a lot of time was spent drinking tea here in the Institute and I think that was the first thing I did was to ban uh, the tea hour uh, in the afternoon. Um, uh, and um, I also brought a, a, a team of young people with me because um, in, in those days, as now, you, uh, if you really didn't want the job you could negotiate your entry terms. Uh, and I did and I said we, we needed a laboratory with conservation uh, we needed to boost the photographic unit, there was a photographer here, and we, we needed a proper cartographic unit, and the university agreed to put money in for all those things. So suddenly overnight there was a, a real change, and a number of comparatively young people came into those jobs. Um, and then from then on it was trying to draw all the disparate bits of archaeology together, so that um, uh, eventually we had the School of Archaeology, which was a, a, a very, th and is, a very thriving, active uh, organiser of the, the archaeological ability of the university. And the undergraduate degree, what you introduced in Oh, oh yes, I, th yes. I can't remember the exact year. I think it was about 1990. Yes, it was early 90s, yes. certainly. That was after a tremendous amount of fight to get it in. 
um, uh, soon after I came, I tried to get a degree in archaeology and geography going, and that failed miserably, and, and, and it should have failed. It, it wasn't a good plan. Um, and then uh, I learned a, a lot more about the politics of Oxford, and then we tried to get a degree in archaeology and anthropology through. And it was thrown out by the senior tutors committee on the, the grounds that archaeology cannot be taught in Oxford, which I thought was rather curious. Well, what I think they meant is there weren't any old fellows dotted around in the colleges who could teach it. Handy. That, yes. that, that's right. Yes. So you know that that was dynamic conservatism at its very worst. It made us all extremely angry. But uh, you survived. You well, survived. well, that that anger, <laughs> that anger really galvanised us, um, and uh, we all of those of us who wanted the degree said, "No, we are going to have this undergraduate degree. Oxford must have an undergraduate degree. We want undergraduates. It's very important for us." Um, the undergraduates bring life to a department. So um, that, that's what we, 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 we got together and then fought it politically by getting groups of colleges um, to support us. And when we got built the support base, the, the whole degree flowed through and it's been a tremendous it success. It has been a, a great success, mm. hasn't it? It has. Can, can you mm. highlight some of, the, some of your successes, some of your uh, excavations where, that you've been able to take undergraduates and postgraduates? Mm. Oh yes, well that, that's one of the great things about Oxford archaeology. There is a huge amount of fieldwork going on. We're, we're all, most of us, involved in fieldwork in different parts of the world. Uh, and we all are very happy to take uh, undergraduates. And there are indeed, as, as you will well know yourself, um, field projects which are designed for undergraduates as well. So they've got a tremendous range of opportunities. Um, I, I've taken undergraduates on, on a whole range of excavations that I've done, mainly in the Danebury area, and I've taken them across to France, I've taken some to Spain where, when we've dug. Um, and at the moment, uh, well, there are, my own field projects are still continuing, I'm excavating at the Roman villa at Braiding in the Isle of Wight. Um, that's been going for two years and I think it's got three or four more years to go. Braiding is, is a very attractive place. It was a Roman villa excavated in the 1880s and um, they laid open uh, one of the wings, the west wing of the villa, which has some very fine mosaics, extremely fine mosaics. They built a tin shed over it um, and needless to say um, in the, about the 1990s the tin shed was at the end of its life, <laughs> 110 years of it. Uh, and um, uh, a trust took over the site and um, got a heritage lottery fund, built a wonderful building over, over the uh, mosaics and the cafe and a schools area for a very, very good um, interaction with schools. Um, and um, uh, they, they really wanted some live archaeology at just the moment when I'd finished a major project of excavating on Roman villas, and I was looking at the Roman villa at Braiding, thinking I really would be interested to do some digging there. So the two things came together beautifully, and uh, we are very much linked in with um, access. Uh, I use uh, lots of local volunteers on the excavation. The idea is to have as many local people as possible uh, so that we can train them and, and create a, a really strong team on the island. And is this uh, during the summer? Yes, it takes place uh, so far uh, every August. And now that you're retired, in inverted commas, then, <laughs> uh, what new roles have you taken on? Well, um, I've, been, I've been very uh, closely involved with the British Museum as a trustee and with um, English Heritage as a commissioner of English Heritage. I've just finished my um, stint as a trustee of the British Museum, which was nine years. That was quite, quite active involvement. 
I'm still a Commissioner of English Heritage, which um, involves me in, in, in a lot of work around the country. Uh, and for a while I was interim chairman of English Heritage when there was a gap in the, the chairmanship, which was very exciting. I had to deal with politicians, which was uh, uh, gave me an insight into the world. You were involved world. in the Stonehenge. Uh, at the moment I'm very much involved in Stonehenge, yes. Yeah. Um, the English Heritage is going to build a brilliant, brilliant new visitor centre there. And we're going at this moment where we have the um, scheme in for planning permission uh, and we're, we're hopeful to get it going uh, open uh, by the time of the Olympics. Uh, um, the most important thing is that um, we will get rid of the awful road that goes right next to Stonehenge, grass it over, get rid of the dreadful car park, and Stonehenge will be in, in its grassland setting, which is for the first time ever. Oh, oh, since the prehistoric <laughs> yes, period, uh, and the um, visitor facilities will be sort of over the hill and out of the way, and very fine visitor facilities, so, so that we'll restore the, the tranquility to the site at last. How have you seen archaeology change since you started to study oh, it at university? Gosh, uh, it, it changed, exponential change. When, when I stu started at university, this, this was in the late 1950s, early 60s, um, archaeology was very much a sort of still uh, divided between the keen amateur on the one hand and the very few uh, professionals, very few professionals in universities and, and that was it. Oh there was a little bit of state service as well. Mm. Um, but um, the, the growth, um, get, getting uh, archaeology on the agenda, the developer's agenda, which I was very heavily involved with in, in the years. Um, getting what we now call PPG 15 and 16, the, the planning policy guidance, yeah. which means that archaeology is an essential part of any development that goes on, has changed archaeology out of all recognition. There are thousands of people now employed in archaeology. For those who like to get dirty and, and like to have their minds really actively involved, archaeology is a fabulous career. And um, uh, it's not easy. Uh, and that's good because it sorts out the really dedicated people from those who have just seen the occasional television programme and exactly. think it's Exactly, I was going explosive. to talk about the media. Please do, say, please we do. do. Have, yeah. Yes, we do have different uh, opinions yeah. about the media, but mm. um, one thing you could say that it has brought archaeology into people's living rooms, hasn't it? Yes, there's no doubt that um, from the time of Mortimer Wheeler and Glyn Daniel in the late 1950s, archaeology has been immensely popular. Um, um, Mortimer Wheeler was Television Personality of the Year one year, and Glyn Daniel was Television Personality of the Year the next year, and this was in the in the fifties. So um, it's had a, a very long history of being involved in television. I think television now is not doing archaeology much good. Uh, it, it's portraying it in 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 a curious way, partly as pantomime and, and partly quiz as, and yes. quiz and all that sort of thing and makeovers and 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 that's not what archaeology is about. It, it's an intellectual discipline. It's challenging. It's very exciting, and it's very 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 hard work. Um, it's not um, people running around across fields waving their arms in all directions and looking silly. Um, it, it is, as you know yourself, yes. um, I would say that uh, the, the archaeological digging is 90% hard work and 10% excitement. You've done a lot of practical excavation, so can you tell us about the publications that you produced? 
yes, I think um, publication to me is is the essential part of the, the fieldwork project, and too many archaeologists still, I'm afraid, don't get their publications out on time, and I, I think that is inexcusable. Uh, but um, uh, yes, uh, Roman Bath, for example, yes. we did a lot of very exciting work in, in, in Bath and produced some wonderful volumes on, on that here in the Institute. Um, more recently, there's been the, the Danebury projects which we've worked on. Uh, we excavated the hill fort of Danebury for 20 years and then moved on into the landscape around Danebury looking at Iron Age settlements and then after, after a period of doing that we moved on again and looked at Roman settlements in the same area. So we have a huge amount of data from the Iron Age hill fort itself from about um, six or seven Iron Age settlements around and four or five Roman villas around and all of that it's producing a continuity in the landscape. Yeah, yes, yes, we were looking, wanting to look at the landscape in the Salon Doré from, um, say, 1000 BC. That's, that was really the, the scale we were looking through. And all of that has generated a huge amount of publication. Most of the work was done here in the Institute. Um, conservation work has been done here, handling all the pottery, doing all the drawings, uh, doing all the photography, and, and editing the volumes together. So we now have big pile of volumes enough to keep the door open with. Um, that, that was one, one of the projects. Um, we've also worked in Spain, uh, on, in two, on two projects in Spain, one in southern Spain, uh, a place called Torre Paradones in, in Andalusia, uh, which was a very, very hard excavation, very hot, um, tough, uh, difficult to get to, um, exhausting, but terribly rewarding, great hill town um, f running through the first millennium BC, right out in the Campina uh, of Cordoba, wonderful countryside. And then more recently we've worked uh, in a rather softer countryside in La Rioja in, in northern Spain, uh, right in the middle of vineyards, of course. How um, convenient. <laughs> oh, very, very convenient indeed. Um, we appreciated the local produce very much. Um, uh, that, that was quite tough. We're on, on a very exposed hilltop finding mud brick buildings of the Iberian period. Now, all of those projects, again, uh, we've worked on the material here and uh, produced ma major volumes on them. Accessible to students and public alike, aren't Oh, they? yes, unless one publishes material, um, it doesn't exist. Yes. Um, and I've always felt that um, ideally one should do three things. Um, Firstly, um, there is a responsibility to publish the definitive reports for, for the profession so that the data is there for other people to use as quickly as possible after the excavation. There's no point in sitting on data for 20, 30 years. Um, but one should also, if possible, publish a popular accounts. And I, I've managed to do that with sites like Fishbourne and Bath and, and Danebury. Um, small books that are easily accessible and fortunately get reprinted. Um, and if, if it's humanly possible also to do museum displays of material. And I've been able to do that, well years ago I was able to do that at Fishbourne, setting up the museum there in 1968, uh, which is still going strong, and producing a little guidebook for it. And we did the same at Bath, mm -hmm. um, major museum renovation in Bath after our excavations in the Sacred Spring. Produced a guidebook for that. Uh, and also at Danebury. Uh, after the Danebury project, we created the Museum of the Iron Age of Danebury uh, in Andover, and that is still going strong. 
So um, this um, communication is an extremely important part of uh, the field archaeologist's work. Final word, to, uh, mm. could you offer any advice to anybody at any age thinking about uh, taking a part-time mm. course in archaeology or studying it at university? It's Well, uh, well I, I was given very good advice uh, when I was thinking of being an archaeologist in, in my teens, uh, advice from Sir Mortimer Wheeler. Uh, and I said, you know, I, I was thinking of being an archaeologist and he said, I would advise you strongly not to be an archaeologist, young man. And he said, unless you can't bear to think of life without being an archaeologist. And I think that is good advice. Um, it, it, it's not a fun, easy thing. It is a profession that needs dedication. And if you are a practical person, if you are excited by the past, uh, if you like the, the detective story element of really grabbing at a problem and worrying away at it and accumulating data and putting that data together and getting answers. If you've got that kind of mind and are prepared to work at it, it is the most fabulous way of life and I wouldn't have had any other. Professor Barry Candiff, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.